When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Women vs. Hollywood, a podcast that looks at the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara. And over the course of this series, I'll be looking at some of the issues that have affected women in the film business, in the past, in the present, and into the future. We're going to take a crack at explaining exactly why it is that most films made in Hollywood today are made by, and starring, and for, men. Given that there were women there a century ago in large numbers at the dawn of cinema, and that they even dominated, for example, screenwriting in the silent era... What went so wrong? Why are we in a situation where the under 20% and often under 10% of directors of major films are women? Why are there so few female screenwriters? Why are there almost no female composers? Why are actresses underpaid relative to their male contemporaries? Hollywood is supposed to be the American dream made flesh, right? An opportunity for anyone to get ahead if they're plucky enough and determined enough. So how come that is so much easier for men, and straight, cis, white, able-bodied men at that? That's the sort of question we're going to be asking, and we'll be looking at what everyone is doing to change that picture, and especially at the women who are trying to fight back and carve out a space in the Hollywood landscape, not only for themselves, but for other women to come after them. Now, some of you may know that I've just written a book on this subject and that it has the same name as this podcast. Look, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the idea here is that you're going to hear from people other than me. So if you've read the book, this will hopefully add to some of those themes. And if not, it's a good introduction to what's on the page. So today we're going to focus on the picture for award season. What kind of films dominate awards? Who gets nominated from those movies? And what does all of that tell us about Tinseltown's entire value system? So to help me today, I'm going to be joined by several guests who have very kindly given up their time to talk about this. I'm going to speak to Amy Gustine, who's the director of the British Independent Film Awards, or BIFA, about the work they've done on unconscious bias training for their members. I'm going to speak to Tom Solinsky, who's the co-host of the Best Pick podcast, which has gone through all 90-odd years of Academy Award history, to discuss the Academy Awards in particular with him and their impact on women in the film industry. But first, let's hear from actress and writer Jessica Regan, Tom's fellow Best Pick co-host, and of course an actress and award winner in her own right. We started by discussing the kind of roles you need to play to win Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. For Best Supporting Actress, you need to support your husband while he does the interesting thing. <laughs> Very much so. Worked for Jennifer Connelly. Also, it, to be honest, what really helps you win uh, an Oscar is to be in a Best Picture. We have found that men are significantly 
well, first of all, there's there's the whole, you know, there's there's more male roles than female roles. But on top of that, when you factor in that the the male narratives and best pictures, best pictures tend to center male narratives. The odds are ever in their favor. So that's that's another one. The thing is though, what I would say is that the, the quality of 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 best actress performances is is of such a high standard because when you come through all these barriers to actually get an acting job, let alone get an Oscar winning role uh you're you're dealing with such a small percentile of 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 talent in the industry it's 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 excellent you know i think aaron sorkin a few years ago was was quite unkind or there was like talk about how so much harder what a man has to do than what a woman has to do and i think that a lot of that has to go with this has to do with the kind of the performance that goes around a best male leading role in terms of the Oscars, you know, uh, in that there'll be so much talk of, oh, they were really the training they did and the the research and the preparation. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio's a vegetarian and had to be around entrails. Poor guy, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, and Meryl Streep just acted, you know, really, really well. Just summoned it, just called it forth, was a vessel, was a facilitator, was an enabler, was a contributor, as opposed to kind of centering this narrative around this kind of masochistic male uh, pr- performing. Because, okay, because one of the things I've talked about in the book about is about the uh, auteur theory and how that has kind of cemented the place of the great auteur directors. And it feels like the method acting you describe there is kind of cementing the status of certain male actors in, in a similar way. This misappropriation of method whereby you punish yourself physically and you stay in character the whole time actually does not achieve what people want it to achieve. Uh, the air doesn't change between the actors. I find the performance that doesn't leap off the screen. I see someone suffering and utterly inward and having their own experience rather than including me in theirs. Do you think that things are changing? Do we Are we seeing a change in the kind of roles that win Oscars, the kind of roles that are nominated, the kind of people that are nominated and are up for these kind of awards as well? I mean, if you'd asked me that a couple of years ago, I would probably have said sadly no. But as all progress and evolution in film seems to be like giant leaps after just the most crawling, dragging progress, inching by inch, you know, just centimetre by centimetre, and then all of a sudden you have an incredible wealth of representation all of a sudden, you know. So so yes, I I think things are changing. I think... I think television is, has, has helped that as well. The golden age of television, you know, seeing more anti-heroines and people really responding to that. And then people go, actually, women like all kinds of stories. Huh. Do you have a particular kind of lost cause, should have been nominated, should have won, that, that still kind of bakes your noodle? I was pretty shocked about Greta Gerwig not getting nominated for Little Women. And I had to like Preach. really triple check that because I was like... Because she was nominated for Lady Bird, which mm-hmm. is delightful, lovely, right? yeah, you know. Yeah. And it's that thing where you go, but I went into Little Women as like a huge fan of, of the Winona Ryder one. You know, I just, just I was 13 when I saw it. I was the perfect age. It completely got me. They cast Gabriel Byrne as her husband. I mean, I mean every, everyone was a winner, you know. Um, And I just went into it going, oh, am I going to hate this? You know, am I going to feel old watching this? Because like <laughs> these, ki- these kids coming up today, you know. Um, And I was just, I had a headache from crying by the end of it. Like I had a pounding headache from just weeping because it, it was... It was so magnificent, but what was so strong in it was the direction, you know, to kind of reinvent the book like that, 
to reinvent a classic like that and 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 retain its magic but make it feel fresh and immediate without sacrificing any of give her all the kudos in the world and um Alison Anders is someone, you know, who I felt got mm. very overlooked in the age of indie. You know, when when Tarantino and Rodriguez were being so fated, you know, and she got she I mean she won a few awards and she did garner a lot of attention. She won a Peabody, but again, there just isn't the same energy behind these bad boys. What's the equivalent of a, of a bad boy of or an enfant terrible of for for women? You know, it's a woman who can't get a job. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, but what, what about you? What would you, who who, who are you still? What, shaking your fist at the sky. Yeah, also Little Women for sure. Um, also uh, Leave No Trace and uh, You Were Never Really Here. Right. I mean, if we're talking Joaquin Phoenix transforms his body and kills people movies, like it's not even close for me. It's not It's not a competition, but it's Lynn Ramsey every day of the week. It's and twice oh a day. Oh my God, what am I even saying? Film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We need to talk about Kevin. Oh my God, yeah. I rewatched that that's actually one of the best pick episodes I, I pick that when we, we you know we say who would you have given it if you could have given it to someone and I, I re-watched it uh, going now I know I loved this but like is it, a, it could it have been a best picture winner and like yes like it's it's a micro story that's a macro story it's uh, oh Lynn Ramsey's incredible and and the, the direction of that again particularly there's such a strong voice there but but there's so many She's absolutely drawing out the best of of Tilda Swinton, in my opinion. Like, and Tilda Swinton, who's always magnificent, but there's something just uncomfortably human about her. In in uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Um, it really, and it's such an unfilmable book. You know, it's such a hard, hard story to tell. Um, yeah, that that now, now you've made me mad now, Helen. I'm thinking about that. I'm, <laughs> oh no, I'm grumpy. Oh, no. I'm to make some calls, send some emails. <laughs> Although women have often been overlooked at award ceremonies, some organisations are trying to make tangible changes to the kind of person who is seriously considered for these awards. I had a discussion with Amy Gustine, the director of the British Independent Film Awards, about their use of unconscious bias training and how they're trying to change the way their members think about film. We've always been sort of more open I'd say than a lot of other award bodies our our voters are are younger are more representative of the industry our barriers to entry are a lot lower than lots of other award bodies you know we take festival screenings as a point of eligibility rather than a full theatrical release which allows us to look at a slightly different set of film where you will typically get better representation across the board of the people making the films and the stories that are being told. And I think for us, it was really important that we made the playing field as level and as fair as we possibly could by fundamentally changing some of the the, the nuts and bolts of the, the voting process itself, making sure that the people that were watching and voting on the films was representative of the industry. And also making sure that we equipped our voters in the best possible way to make fair decisions. And part of that was unconscious bias training. And, it, you know, it's one of those things that everybody has has bias, unless you're kind of brought up in a cave with no outside influence at all, you're going to have bias. And we just felt it was really important that people took the time to get to to know what those biases are and where they may sit. And a lot of time when you're making decisions on creative work, 
you'll often hear people say, oh, it was gut feeling or um, it's my style or it's my, you know, it just spoke to me. Well, that's great, but that's not kind of quantifiable. You've got to understand why your gut is telling you that. And if it's because you have been exposed to a certain type of film or life or whatever it is, that is going to inform your decision. So we're not trying to kind of take away people's tastes. We just want them to understand why they have those tastes so that when they're viewing a piece of work that is maybe not to their taste, they can still appreciate the quality and the workmanship that has gone into that film. So for us, it was unpicking that and then equipping them with the skills to view things fairly. And whether that is, you know, simple things like making sure you're not freezing cold and hungry, making sure that you're in an environment where you are able to be absorbed and concentrate on what you're watching, you know, giving them tips on how to make notes as they're going along, because they'll be watching films across quite a, a large period of time. So something that they maybe watch in June, their recall bias will be different to something they watch in September when they're about to vote on it. So just making everybody a bit more aware of the kind of external factors that come into play whilst they are making decisions and also viewing films. And then also, yeah, looking at things like genre bias and um, affinity bias and all these things that you don't necessarily, you're not consciously aware are happening, but they're ticking over all the time in your brain. And I think, you know, once you are made aware that that is happening, then you can consciously choose to listen to that or not. So that for us was was fascinating. Just to sort of explain this to people, this this is the kind of tendency that, let's say, the Oscars has to treat, let's say, war movies or political biopics as being inherently more serious, in quotes, and important, in quotes, yeah. than, I don't know, Little Women, which is a kind of domestic drama. Yeah. And there's a fascinating bit of research that was done that male violence was something that was winning through time and time again, regardless of actually the quality of the film or who worked on it. But that narrative was something that was resonating with those voters. And until you unpick why that particular narrative is resonating with those particular voters, nothing's going to change. And I think it is startling, but fascinating. And that's why unconscious bias training is is one piece of the puzzle. It takes fundamental change and you know, process changes and, you know, changes in who is making the decisions. Like it's, it's not a a quick fix. You have to look at the whole picture and unpick that and then sort of rebuild it in a fair, balanced way. Well, the time has come. (laughs) Catherine Bigelow! There's no other way to describe it. It's the moment of a lifetime. And I'd just like to dedicate this to the women and men Um, in the military who risk their lives on a daily basis in Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world and may they come home safe. Thank you. That was Catherine Bigelow winning the Academy Award for Best Director for The Hurt Locker in 2010. Yes, she was the first woman to win the award for Best Director in 2010 and she was only recently joined by another female director, Chloe Zhao, who won for Nomadland in 2021. Despite being the first female-directed Best Picture winner, The Hurt Locker also ticks a lot of the Academy's boxes when it comes to what they consider serious and awards-worthy films. I spoke to Tom Zielinski, co-host of the Best Pick podcast, about The Hurt Locker, 
and how the Oscars have treated women throughout their history. I think The Hurt Locker is amazing. It's one of my favourite Best Picture winners. Probably my favourite for like uh, five or ten years either side. It is curious that the first female winner of Best Director directed a film about boys doing boy things written by a boy. Uh, you know, the, the Academy's always had a soft spot for for war films, particularly you know well-made ones. But there's nothing which you could point to that film and say, ah, I, I see the woman's touch at work. I see what, what only a female director could have brought to this. If anything, it's the opposite. And that is that is weird. It does seem like, I mean, with Catherine Bigelow, I 100% agree with you. I think the fact that she is a great director of men is is a huge part of her success. And the, the reason that she was the sort of the exception, the one permitted exception in Hollywood for, for much of her career. Um, but I'm really encouraged by Chloe Zhao being in there because I do think she is just seen as a filmmaker. She's not a woman's filmmaker. She's not a man's filmmaker. She's just seen as a filmmaker. And I think that's that's where I hope the future is going. I mean, let's talk about actresses for a minute. You know, what, what are the, the, the striking things there? Because I did a little bit of research into this, less than you have, but I was struck by the fact that a lot of uh, winners of Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress are much younger than their male equivalents and a whole gap in the midlife for female winners. Uh, the average age of men who win Best Actor is 44. The average age of women who win Best Actress is 36. In the supporting categories, it's 49 to 41. Because uh, I had some time on my hands, I, I plotted a 10-year moving average. <laughs> and uh, Best Actor is always ahead of Best Actress, and it's the same in the supporting categories. Um, do you know who the, uh, the only winner of Best Actor is who was in his 20s? Yes, Adrian Brody, the pianist. Correct, 29. Uh, uh, as opposed to there are 32 winners of Best Actress who were under 30. Marley Matlin was only 21 and Jennifer Lawrence was only 22. And that wasn't even her first nomination. Uh, Marie Dressler is a, a real outlier. <laughs> she won ah, Best yes. Actress in 1931 at the age of 63. But from then until 1952, so she won in 31, so for 22 years... Uh, until Shirley Booth won at the age of 54. There's only one other winner of Best Actress over 40. And I'm pretty sure Shirley Booth is the only actress to win Best Actress in her 50s in the whole 20th century. We've had a couple now, um, Sandra Bullock and Renee Zellweger, but the 50s in particular, completely absent. Yes, that's pretty much the case. If I remember correctly. Yeah. So, so it does seem like age matters. Does role matter? Because I know that there's there's been a sort of cliche at the very least that if you play a prostitute, um, you're you're or a nun, you're in with a better shot of winning an yeah. Oscar. <laughs> yes. Well, one thing I did notice is uh, just looking at the names of Best Picture winners. Obviously, a, a lot of my film watching recently has been oriented around Best Picture winners. How many Best Picture winners can you name? where the title refers to a, to a female character. I know there's very few. I was able to come up with eight, and some of them are edge cases. Okay. Uh, so in chronological order, Rebecca. Fair. But she, well, she doesn't appear. She's not actually seen on screen at any point. True. Does she, come, does she count as a character? Interesting uh, question. Mrs. Yes. Miniver. Uh, no, that's fair. Or is that the flower? Oh, no, we're going, no, we're going <laughs> to right. allow it. No, it's definitely her and not the rose. Uh, All About Eve, I think, is fair enough. Okay. Gigi, is, I think, is fair enough. My Fair Lady doesn't name her, but it's clear who it's referring to. Uh, Annie Hall, Driving Miss Daisy, and I think Million Dollar Baby. Okay. But I could find 30 Best Picture winners named after men, starting with The Great Zigfield, The Life of Emil Zola and Hamlet, and ending with The Return of the King, Slumdog Billionaire, The King's Speech, The Artist and Birdman. And I'll leave it as an exercise to listeners to fill in the ones in between. <laughs> there you go. You've got some fun homework, everybody. Hello, I'm Martin. 
Hello, I'm Sam, and together we host Song by Song, a show about the music of Tom Waits. So you listen to Helen O'Hara right now, but guess what? We're on the same network, Strip Media. In fact, your host Helen was our guest in 2021, talking about Hector Babenko's Ironweed, a depression movie in both senses of the word. It was a real barrel of laughs. If you'd like to hear Helen's thoughts on Tom Waits and on culture in general, take a look at songbysongpodcast.com or search Song by Song wherever you find podcasts. Now, if things are tough for white women at the Oscars, they are even tougher for women of colour. As of 2021, only 36 black women have ever been nominated for an acting Oscar. That's from a pool of over 900 nominees. Of those, Rotten Tomatoes editor Jacqueline Coley calculated that over half played either slaves or maids or women living in abject poverty. Many of the rest of the remaining half were principally defined as the wife or the mother of a male character. So this is a very, very poor representative view of black women, or an inspiring one at all. Only seven Asian women or women of Asian descent have been nominated in the acting categories, six of them as supporting actress, which suggests that there are not great roles for women of Asian descent. There have only been three women of Hispanic descent nominated in the acting categories, and one of those was Hilary Swank, who, you know, with respect, doesn't appear to be particularly Latina. Uh, Her maternal grandmother is of Mexican descent, but she did at least win Best Actress twice, instantly improving Latinx representation at the awards. There have only been three Indigenous nominees, Whale Rider's Keisha Castle-Hughes, Roma's Yalitza Aparicio, and Hawaii's Jocelyn Lagarde in 1966. This all suggests that awards bodies honour, whether consciously or not, a certain type of person rather than a certain quality of work. And of course, that there are not great roles for women who are not straight, cis and white. Here's what Tom Zielinski had to say about his research into the representation of people of colour at the Oscars. The way this very often goes is you have the first person to do something, followed by the first woman to do something, uh, followed by the first black person to do something, followed by the first black woman to do something. And then you generally find those lists of the first black women on lists of black women doing things as opposed to people doing things. As we sort of, we, we, we segment and we marginalise more and more and more, sometimes without meaning to. But as you said, it was Hattie McDaniel who was the first person of colour to win any Academy Award at all in 1939. Best Supporting Actress for Gone with the Wind. The second award given to a non-white person is a bit queasier. Uh, It's James Baskett, who received an honorary award for Song of the South in 1948. If anyone listening doesn't know what Song of the South is, lucky you. Um, But it's a a very racist Disney film. And a a racist Disney film which was thought to be racist in 1948 when it was re-released, which doesn't stop Disney re-releasing it, I think, something like half a dozen times, most recently in the 80s. But it is now locked in the vault and will, we are assured, not be re-emerging. So that's that's a good thing. In 1954, Dorothy Dandridge was nominated as Best Actress. And in 1958... Uh, Sidney Poitier was nominated, nominated as Best Actor and he won in 1963 for Lilies of the Field. And then it's black musicians who begin to make headway. So you got people like Duke Ellington and Quincy Jones receiving nominations for song or score writing, but they don't win. It's not until 1972 that Isaac Hayes wins Best Original Song for Theme from Shaft. Deserved. Uh, which makes him the first, the first black person to win an Academy Award in a non-acting category. Wow. In total, I counted 32 black people 
who have won Oscars across a couple of dozen categories in 93 years, and uh, 10 of them are either for acting or for music. Good Lord. The first person to win an Academy Award outside of these two areas is Willie D. Burton uh, for Best Sound for the movie Bird in 1988. Good Lord. Uh, Of those 32 black Oscar winners outside of acting and music, five are women. Five. Wow. There have been Asian Oscar winners as early as 1954, uh, when Japanese Sanzo Wada won Best Costume Design for Gates of Hell, and you've Chinese-American James Wong Howe, who becomes the first non-white person to win multiple Oscars when he collected a second award for cinematography in 1963. So you could compile a slightly different list for non-white winners rather than specifically black winners, but I don't think it would change the overall narrative. Oh, no, the, the overall narrative is still like super duper white not dominated um i mean yeah there, there's i'm thinking also merle oberon was um sri lankan and i think had some maori blood as well but passed as white and and got oscar yeah. nominated and when questions began to arise over her ethnicity she suddenly stopped getting oscar nominated even though she was doing yeah. potentially better work at that point in her career so yeah there, there's some really there's some really questionable stuff. I mean, you know, has the sort of Oscars so white campaign changed the awards? You know, as as we look back on, I know it's only been five years, but it, it feels like it's had an effect. It feels like it's made Oscar at least a little bit more conscious of these biases. Well, uh, we have Cheryl Boone Isaacs to thank if things are changing at all. Uh, she was third woman to be president of the Academy. She's been quietly or not so quietly expanding the size of the Academy. So after decades with about 5,000 members, which is where it was when she took over in 2013, we're now north of 9,000 and approaching 10,000. And because some people have left, we've now got to the, the point where the number of people who've joined since 2013 exceeds the total who were in the organisation before that point. So in other words, most of the active members of the Academy have joined in the last decade or so. Oh, that's promising. And the balance of power has shifted. Most of the newly injected members are not actors. Yes, because that used to be the single biggest voting body. They still are the single biggest body, but instead of being about 20% of the voting members, they're now about 12 or 13%. And and representation in other areas has increased as well. In 2015, 25% of Academy members were women. By 2019... That had grown to a whopping 32%. I mean, that's uh, the percentage we make up of the population, <laughs> exactly. so that's super cool. Uh, yeah. And on a similar line, uh, over the same period, representation of people of colour has doubled uh, from 8% to 16%. Now, only about 60% of Americans are white, so even if the Academy wanted to represent just America, that number could still double and would uh, still fall short. But I don't think the Academy does want to represent America. Mm. They were at pains to highlight that 49% of new members from last year's induction were from outside the United States, representing 68 countries. So I think their game plan to try and stay relevant is to reinvent themselves as a much more outward-looking, international, prize for global filmmaking. And so that gives me hope because I think that means that the, the kind of the broader scope which we saw at the last awards, needs to be continued or that game plan won't work. But it's difficult because you know the leadership can make whatever proclamations it wishes, but at the end of the day, it's a private vote and those 10,000 people may use any criteria they wish in determining who they think should walk away with the Oscars. And the Oscar goes to Chloe Zhao, Nomadland. I've been thinking a lot lately of how I keep going when, uh, when things get hard. And I think, I think it goes back to something I learned when I was a kid. 
when I was growing up in China, my dad and I used to play this game. We would memorize classic Chinese poems and texts, and we would recite it together and try to finish each other's sentences. And there's one that I remember so dearly. It's called the three character classics. And the first phrase goes, 人之初,性本善. People at birth are inherently good. And those six letters had such a great impact on me when I was a kid. And I still truly believe them today. Even though sometimes it might seem like the opposite is true, but I have always found goodness in the people I met everywhere I went in the world. So this is for anyone who has the faith and the courage to hold on to the goodness in themselves and to hold on to the goodness in each other, no matter how difficult it is to do that. And this is for you. You inspire me to keep going. That was Bong Joon-ho and Sharon Choi presenting Chloe Zhao with the Oscar for Best Director for Nomadland at the 93rd Oscars earlier this year. The recent Oscar wins for films like Nomadland, like Parasite and Moonlight, suggest that things are changing, that these wider and more diverse voting pools are making a difference. Amy Gustine has also made a concerted effort to increase the size and diversity of BIFA's membership, something that BAFTA and the Oscars have also begun to do in recent years. We say BIFA is an industry organisation run for and on behalf of the industry. And so we have to make sure that we are representing that that industry. And about six years ago, our, our pool of voters was really quite small and was predominantly people that had been voting on the awards for a long time. And that was something that was one of the kind of practical things that we knew needed to change. Um, and so sort of specifically looking at what areas of the industry weren't represented in that voting pool and practically going out and engaging with them. Also, again, you know, lowering the barrier to entry. A lot of award bodies you need five, ten years and recommended by X, Y and Z members that already kind of sit within their, their membership. Whereas for us, it, it's not. It's, you know, sort of three years. You need to be kind of obviously proactively working within the British film industry. But we value new voices you know, they're, they're the ones bringing in interesting ideas and interesting perspectives. And for us, that's really important. And they are more willing to get on board with change. We're also a really a nimble organisation. We have we do have a board, but they're progressive and they push us to properly reflect the feelings and desires of the industry and to, to make sure that we're always challenging ourselves and pushing to do better. So, you know, if we want to try something, they're very supportive of us having a go and seeing how it works and you know amongst the, the the voters the board and we've got two advisory committees you know we do feel very plugged into the industry and it always overwhelms me how generous those people that are connected with Biffa are because they will give their time their expertise and their thoughts really freely and will allow us to bounce ideas and so if we wanted to to, to try a, a new award or try a different process to see if it works I think because we're a much more agile awards body, it is easier for us to try things and fail and then reshape it. Whereas I think for other award bodies where they've got huge memberships and lots of governing bodies, it is sort of a bit like moving a tanker, I think, whereas us, we're kind of a bit more of a nippy speedboat. So 
I think it's Biffa has quite a useful position in that we can often trial things on behalf of the industry, and then the stuff that that works, it kind of allows them to kind of build on that for themselves. Um, but I think definitely a younger, broader, more diverse demographic, they push you, they keep you on their toes, but they are much more open to trying things and failing and trying again, which I think is really helpful. Just to talk for a second about awards in general, I feel like, you know, there may be people out there who are listening to this going, well, awards don't really matter. You know, that's not going to be the thing at the end of the day that makes your career or not, which is potentially partly true. You know, box office is a huge, huge factor as well. But it feels like awards can help and awards do have a place in in boosting a, a person's careers. Is that your experience? What, what would you say to that? I do agree. I think awards can seem quite frivolous and sometimes a bit unnecessary. But what it does do is it it does highlight the kind of brilliant talent that is coming through. And I think particularly for us with a big focus on emerging talent, time and time again, we hear from debut filmmakers and most promising newcomers that their recognition at Biffa changed their career path. Before they kind of got recognised, they weren't getting their calls answered. They weren't getting in front of particular funders. They weren't getting the finance that they needed. But then as soon as you are recognized in some way by a body that is representative of your industry doors are opened and it does help obviously you've then got to prove your worth by delivering again and again but that definitely definitely makes a difference and it's the same with kind of new on-screen talent as well you know we are very very early on talent with our most promising newcomer earlier than the kind of BAFTA rising star or screen stars of tomorrow and so again it's elevating that talent and giving them a step up um, which either would take them years to get to that position or may never. And I think it is particularly, I think, for the kind of emerging talent from an industry perspective and also internationally as well. A lot of filmmakers that may be known within the kind of the, the UK industry, but not internationally, again, being on those lists is super helpful. And, you know, it was one of the things that we've done over the last few years is we release the long list for our debut categories because... When you get to the nominations, there's only five. And often, in this, particularly in the filmmaker categories, there will be crossover between writer and director and stuff. So releasing that long list, it's just a, a bigger list of talent that we're able to kind of shine a spotlight on. So that is really, really useful. And then from an audience perspective, a lot of these films will have sort of gone under the radar, won't necessarily be, be on you know sides of buses and stuff. So do you miss that opportunity to, to reach an audience? Whereas when you, you have that kind of loud moment where they've got this, platform around the awards and yes a lot of it is fancy dresses and screen grabs and all of that kind of stuff it's still giving a platform to these films that maybe ordinarily wouldn't have had that platform which is allowing us to reach wider audiences which again is is why it's important to kind of bolt on the always on campaign so once we're saying films are brilliant at the award season, we're then kind of backing that up by supporting them when they're released as well. All year, basically. <laughs> all year. There's films all year. <laughs> it's yeah, really important to remember December. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> basically, the awards picture has been skewed. The kind of films that are considered important or awards-worthy have been a certain kind of film, and they've been voted for by a certain kind of person, you know, straight, cis, white, male, able-bodied, the usual kind of guy. 
But that's beginning to change. Awards voters are beginning to diversify. They're beginning to seriously consider films that fall outside the realm of what has been considered important. Political films, war films, films about male violence. And they're beginning to consider other things. They're beginning to consider the likes of Moonlight, of Parasite, of, you know, Nomadland. There is hope for change, but the picture that awards show of, you know, where Hollywood and indeed other film producing industries have placed their priorities and placed the most prestige in history shows that there's been a certain kind of filmmaker and film that has always been treated as inherently more important than others. That attitude is the one that we still have to kind of dismantle. And that's the work that some of our guests and many others around the industry are beginning to try to do now to change minds and hearts and open minds and hearts to consider that maybe other films might also matter and maybe Little Women Should Have Won Best Picture People. Come on! Thanks to my guests today, Amy Gustine, Tom Selinski and Jessica Regan. You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work. And I really recommend that you do. Best Pick is a fantastic podcast and Biffa does amazing work. We've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. But before you go, here are a couple of underrated female-led films that you might have missed, personally recommended by our guests. Here's Tom. The one that comes to mind, which is a bit of a curio that mm. I saw for the first time recently. It's not a wonderful film by any means, but it's a film I didn't even know existed. Uh, and I did have a very good time watching it. And that's A New Leaf. Oh, amazing. Uh, I just watched is, that uh, recently as well. Yeah, amazing. Which is uh, Elaine May and Walter Matthau. And Walter Matthau is one of those actors who I just love in everything. Uh, and Elaine May is someone I've been finding more out about very recently. In some ways, it's dated poorly because the character she plays doesn't feel entirely progressive. But on the other hand, she has written and directed this film and invented this part for herself to play. And uh, although she starts off as this pathetic slightly caricatured figure. She does get a bit of depth towards the end. And, spoilers for A New Leaf, we end up falling in love with her, as does Walter Matter. Here's Amy. So there's a film that's out now, Rare Beast, Billy Piper's debut, mm. which the writing is phenomenal. It is strong, distinctive, raw, ugly. Like, it is, that is a woman. That is a true depiction of a, a woman. And... I suspect it will be underseen because of how it, you know, went now the time it's being released and because it's a debut. But those kind of that kind of narrative and that kind of true representation of women, I think, is something that is underseen and should be seen more widely so that, you know, women can see themselves. And here's Jessica. I'd really recommend Actually, I haven't seen it for a long time, but I remember being utterly pinned to my seat in the cinema from the word go from a really interesting opening sequence. Um, and that's Titus Andronicus, directed by Judy Taymor. It's visually fantastic, which is no surprise when it comes to Judy Taymor, she who conceived the Lion King stage production. But also it does what you should do, what Baz Luhrmann did, and also I think what Laurence Olivier did when adapting Shakespeare is about not being overly reverential, not trying to be historically accurate because some of these plays are set in kind of between worlds, but actually uh, totally going for the essence and the spirit of it. That was our guests recommending Rare Beasts, A New Leaf and Titus Andronicus. You can also find a list of these films in the show notes. 
Thanks so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere books are sold in the UK. It's on audiobook, ebook, physical book, you name it. It will be out in the US in November. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. It really does make a difference. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women vs. Hollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You just heard a Stripped Media production. 